good day everyone and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast broadcast from 3CR your only radio left Susanna here with you and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues your favorites for a start so welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. 3CR In this episode of Left After Breakfast, I will be talking about the November of 47 years ago when the democratically elected government of Australia was dismissed by a rogue Governor-General with the connivance of the Queen. I'll talk about Jenny Hocking's book, The Expose of the Dirty Deeds of Buckingham Palace. The BL from the Bush will discuss the infamous robo-debt, and the bagman will recount more of his alarming and colourful memoirs. Stay tuned. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. because nothing will save the Governor-General. The proclamation which you have just heard read by the Governor-General's official secretary was countersigned Malcolm Fraser. go down in Australian history from Remembrance Day 1975 as Kerr's Kerr. It was a big year, 1975, a momentous year really. Well, Eamon de Valera died that year, as did Chiang Kai-shek. And apparently it was a good year for port wine. Interesting, but it was a bad year for Australia. A very bad year. 1975 was the year in which the Fraser-led opposition government, through its illicit control of the Senate, created political crisis after political crisis by blocking 21 bills, And then the greatest crisis in Australia's political history, they deferred supply. These venal men of the Liberal Party believed themselves to be the inheritors of Menzies and they were born to govern. And they couldn't believe that they had been defeated in 1972 and they risked the stability of the nation by blocking major bills of the Whitlam government. The Governor-General, John Kerr, removed Whitlam as Prime Minister, the first and only time this has ever happened in Australian history. I remember his secretary, David Smith, reading a proclamation dissolving Parliament, and Kerr appointed Malcolm Fraser as caretaker Prime Minister. It was called an assault on democracy. Well, they're sort of mild words, aren't they? They shocked the country. I don't forget Whitlam standing on the steps of Parliament House saying, well, may we say God save the Queen because nothing will save the Governor-General. 
John Kerr was in close touch with the palace during this period, but under the cover of personal correspondence, all documents were locked away and embargoed by the Queen. After a protracted legal campaign, the correspondence between John Kerr and the palace were finally released just a couple of years ago. Professor Jenny Hocking's book, The Palace Letters, reveals the implications for Australian democracy. The 11th of November 1975 was the day that changed Australia forever and made people question the strength of the democracy they lived in. It's a really important day in our history. Those short three years of the Whitlam government is now seen as our most reforming government ever. You see, Conservative government had been the norm in Australian politics since Federation and the preference was for reform by increment, a little tiny bit at a time, rather than by just pushing it through. Sadly, however, much of what Gough Whitlam built has been torn down. But what remains continues to shape Australia's national life. Here's just some of the Whitlam legacy. He took us out of the Vietnam War and he abolished conscription. We'd been fighting in South Vietnam at the bequest of USA since 1962. In 1964, conscription was introduced. Labor's anti-war policy became one of Whitlam's most powerful election campaign assets. Whitlam took the demonology out of foreign policy, recognising China after the coalition had refused contact with Beijing for 24 years. Whitlam led a Labour delegation to China in July 1971 and the then Prime Minister Billy McMahon called Whitlam a communist pawn only to see United States President Richard Nixon announce his proposed visit to China a week later. Medibank was established. Medibank, Universal Health Scheme, the precursor to Medicare. It seems quite unbelievable now that before Gough, we didn't have a health care scheme. If you were sick, you had to have some money to go and see a doctor. If you needed any surgery, well, if you didn't have the money up front, bad luck. Thank you, Gough, for Medibank, now Medicare. That's one thing that the Conservatives really hated then and they really hate now. They have been trying ever since to knock off Medicare and they're still doing it bit by bit. And the social welfare reforms, the supporting mother's benefit and the welfare payment for homeless people. Before 1973, only widows were entitled to any sort of pension payment. Any other woman raising children alone faced some pretty invidious choices. But the supporting mother's benefit gave sole mothers choices and options around the raising of their children. It did also help to remove the stigma, the old, old stigmas around single mothers. Equal pay for women. One of the first acts of the Whitlam government was to reopen the national wage and equal pay case at the Commonwealth Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. The 1972 equal pay case meant that Australian women doing work similar to that done by men 
should be paid an equal wage. And in 1974, the Commission extended the adult minimum wage to include women workers for the first time. OK, it's still not quite there yet, but it's written in law that it must be. The Australian Legal Office and the Australian Law Reform Commission were set up. The death penalty for Commonwealth offences was abolished. Whitlam's reforms led to the 2010 federal legislation which prohibits the reinstatement of capital punishment in all Australian states and territories. The Family Law Court Act, which provides for a national family court and simplified non-punitive divorce laws were introduced. Whitlam government also established needs-based funding for schools. A free university education was available to all Australians, briefly, briefly available. In his three years of government, participation in higher education increased by 25%. The main beneficiaries were women. The National Sewerage Programme, perhaps not so glamorous, but it connected suburban homes to sewerage. The government spent $330 million on the programme before it was cancelled by the Fraser government. The Whitlam government replaced God Save the Queen with Advance Australia Fair as our national anthem. It may not be the choice of everybody, but it's a hell of a lot better than God Save the Queen. The Order of Australia replaced the British Honours System. The Racial Discrimination Act in 1975 conferred rights to equality before the law and bound the Commonwealth and the states to the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. The Department of Aboriginal Affairs was set up and the first Commonwealth legislation to grant land rights to Indigenous people was drafted. Land title deeds were handed to some Gurindjeri traditional landowners in the Northern Territory in 1975, a real and symbolic gesture that became a touchstone for the land rights movement. The Whitlam government also established the National Gallery of Australia, the Australia Council for the Arts, the Australian Heritage Commission. It introduced FM radio, it set up multicultural radio services and issued licences to community radio stations, for example, 3CR. The Australian Film and Television School was set up and the Australian film industry just flowered. And Papua New Guinea became independent on September the 16th, 1975, after being administered from Australia since the First World War. That's just some of the things that the Whitlam government did, dear listener, and the things which stay mainly in my mind, because they were the things which impacted upon me. The supporting mother's benefit, of course, was very well received. Access to a university education. But I had also been very, very involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement and to stop conscription for boys aged 20 who could not vote, remember, but they could go away and kill other people and be killed, but they couldn't vote. And I was involved in the land rights movement as much as I could, being a non-Indigenous person, 
I worked very hard to stop the death penalty and to allow Papua New Guinea to be independent. And of course, I have to thank the Gough Whitlam government now, and I do it very, very often, and I keep saying, thank you, Gough, for Medicare. I remember the day I was no more than a boy Working in an oxide plant at the back of North Fitzroy Bert Gilchrist told the gaffer Cos Bert Gilchrist had the clout He said they'd given got the bullet And the lads are walking out And we walked right up that job While the gaffer held the door And watched it on the telly in a TV rental store It was one hell of a situation The kind you just can't gauge There was golf on the steps of Parliament House Saying no maintain the rage In the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the Push it out There was violence in the air As I walked back home that night Everyone you'd meet was getting ready for the fight Saying if they're out for trouble Then trouble's what they'll get We started out a colony Did they think we're a colony? Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the fuckers push it out But as the weeks went by, the anger turned to wild relief Locks were freed like magic And I watched in disbelief To see a scam so blatant So jacked up and full of holes And the people in their thousands Endorsed it at the balls In the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Some said they had it coming, some were closer to the mark Who spoke about conspiracy, sinister and dark but history records it and the story will be read How we let them take democracy and stand it on its head In the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the fat cards push it out Australia voted in the revolution Then stood back and let the fat cats 
Roaring Chuck and the Ballad of 75, Lest We Forget. 3CR Critical historical documents were hidden from us under the embargo of the Queen until 2027, potentially indefinitely. It was our government that was dismissed, but the documents were hidden from us. The secret palace letters between the Governor-General and the Queen are held in the National Archives of Australia in Canberra and they had been closed to us, the public. In December 2016, Professor Jenny Hocking initiated a federal court action against the National Archives seeking the release of these historic palace letters. The case was heard by the full bench of the High Court of Australia and it handed down its historic decision on the 29th of May 2020 that these letters are Commonwealth records and part of our National Archival Estate. The palace letters were released by the National Archives of Australia to the public in full on the 14th of July 2020. You can get Jenny Hocking's book in any reliable bookstore and I recommend you do so. If you're in any way interested in our history of what happened back then in 1975 and how that truth was held from us. The name of the book is The Palace Letters, The Queen, The Governor-General and The Plot to Dismiss Scott Whitlam. You can get it in paperback. I've got mine in Kindle on the e-reader. You see, the narrative from that 11th of November day was that Kerr had reached a lonely and isolated decision and that he had no other option in the face of the opposition's blocking of supply but to dismiss the government. The Queen's then Deputy Private Secretary was an Australian, Sir William Heseltine, and he stated the palace was in a state of total ignorance. In reality, however, nothing was quite so simple nor as constitutionally proper. We now see it was a complex web of deception, collusion and denial, and the palace was deeply and undeniably involved in it. The letters confirmed that the Queen, through her private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris, discussed the dismissal of the government with the Governor-General and advised him on the use of so-called reserve powers against the advice of the Australian Solicitor-General and the Attorney-General. No respectable historian could now accept that the Queen had no part to play. Heselton's claim of the total ignorance, well, is just staggeringly wrong. Heselton was no minor player himself, remember, dear listener. He'd previously been the private secretary to Liberal Prime Minister Menzies, and he'd been Assistant Federal Director of the Liberal Party of Australia for two years. These letters now show once and for all that the Queen and Prince Charles, now Australia's King, knew as early as September 1975 that Kerr was considering dismissing the government two months before he did so. Two months before he did so. 
they knew a dismissal was being considered by Kerr in the absence of any crisis in government because the opposition had not yet made its decision to withhold supply. And Kerr dismissed the government because supply had been deferred and the government could not govern. The palace knew of Kerr's failure to follow vice-regal convention, which is to advise and counsel and warn the Prime Minister about his planning and thinking, including for possible dismissal. And the palace did not object to Kerr's deceit, nor warn Whitlam of it. Even Kerr's secret adviser, Australia's High Court Justice Sir Anthony Mason told Kerr, if you don't warn Whitlam, you run the risk of being seen as deceptive. The palace was seemingly confident that royal secrecy would forever cover up their role and leave no trace of their discussions with Kerr. The palace letters show that the Queen discussed intensely political matters with Kerr over several months, right down to the defining element of the dismissal and the existence and use of the reserve powers to dismiss government. It confirms that in September 1975, several weeks before the opposition coalition senators first moved to defer a Senate vote on the supply bills, Kerr had privately raised the prospect of dismissing the Labour government. He did this in a secret face-to-face meeting with Prince Charles when they both attended the 16th of September 1975 Papua New Guinea Independence Celebrations in Port Moresby. Kerr told Charles that he was considering having to dismiss the government. Kerr raised his fears that the Prime Minister might sack him first should Whitlam become aware of the plotting. Upon Charles' return to England, he met with the Queen and Sir Martin Charteris to discuss the startling information from Kerr that he was considering sacking the Prime Minister. Charteris wrote back to Kerr in elegant language, only thinly disguising its profound impropriety, setting out the Queen's advice. Kerr was told that should the contingency to which you refer arise, that is, if Whitlam advised the Queen to remove Kerr on becoming aware of Kerr's intention to dismiss the government, that the Queen would delay responding, thereby stalling Whitlam. Charteris advised that the Queen would not immediately act on the Prime Minister's advice as required and give Kerr the time and opportunity to strike first. Kerr was warned, however, that the Queen would eventually have to bow to the Prime Minister's request. So Kerr was warned that in his planning to remove the sitting Prime Minister and elected government, he would need to act swiftly and with secrecy. This is powerful stuff from the Queen to the Governor-General. The direct involvement of the Queen in a discussion with Kerr about his own tenure as Governor-General, unknown to the Prime Minister, was manifestly improper. The appointment or removal of a Governor-General is a decision for the Prime Minister alone to advise the monarch and has been since 1926 Imperial Conference firmly established it. The deception by the Queen upon the elected Prime Minister went even deeper. Kerr himself noted that in her advice to him, the Queen raised no objection to the prospect of the dismissal of the Whitlam government without warning. 
In doing so, she became a party both to Kerr's plotting, planning of the dismissal, and to his failure to warn Whitlam. In this exchange, the Queen expressed an extraordinarily partisan political view. She was condemning the Prime Minister for a hypothetical action against Kerr, the Governor-General's possible recall that Whitlam never took. She was at the same time entirely uncritical of the actions of a rogue Governor-General envisaging the dismissal of an elected government and of a Prime Minister who retained the confidence of the House of Representatives. In doing this, the Queen breached the core requirement of royal political neutrality. On the 21st of October 1975, with supply now blocked in the Senate for nearly a week, at Kerr's request, Whitlam asked the Chief Australian Law Officers to prepare an opinion on just this question of the possible use of the reserve powers. The Solicitor General and the Attorney General concluded that after two centuries of disuse in the Westminster parliamentary system, the reserve powers most likely no longer existed and that there was no basis for them to be used in the current Australian parliamentary stalemate over supply, which they considered a political issue and not a constitutional issue. While the opinion of Australia's two most senior law officers was being prepared, Kerr contacted the palace to tell them the advice would probably conclude there was no grounds for using reserve powers. He then told the palace that he may not accept the advice of the Australian law officers, the constitutional advisers. Three weeks before he dismissed the government, Kerr let the Queen know that he was prepared to act against the advice of his Prime Minister and the most senior Commonwealth law officers on the question of the reserve powers before he even received that advice. The palace made no attempt to respond to this extraordinary statement to dissuade Kerr from this, nor did they remind him of the cardinal principle of a constitutional monarchy that the Governor-General acts on the advice of responsible ministers, namely the Prime Minister. On the 4th of November, the Queen assures Kerr not only that the contested and controversial reserve powers exist, but moreover that any opinion to the contrary is simply wrong. Kerr received the Australian Senior Legal Officer's opinion on the 6th of November 1975 and, as he had anticipated, it gave no grounds for using the reserve powers to dismiss Whitlam. The opinion advised Kerr there was no basis for him to act. Kerr, instead of accepting the advice of Australia's Senior Legal Officers, accepted the advice of the palace. Five days later, Kerr dismissed the Prime Minister and his government in an unprecedented act of vice-regal intervention. Just four months after the dismissal, in March 76, Prince Charles sent a long handwritten letter to his confidant, Sir John Kerr. In it, Charles let the besieged Governor-General know that he fully supported Kerr's dismissal of the Australian government without warning. Charles wrote... I wanted you to know that I appreciate what you do and admire enormously the way you have performed in your many and varied duties. Please don't lose heart. What you did last year was right and the courageous thing to do. And despite all these letters, all these well-documented historical letters, despite the indisputable evidence to the contrary, the palace still claims that discussions between the Queen 
Her private secretary, Prince Charles, and the Governor-General played no part in Kerr's decision to dismiss the government. Within hours of the palace letters release in 2020, Buckingham Palace issued a rare public statement denying that they played any part in Kerr's move to dismiss the government. That denial is absurd. It's so totally at odds with the documented history. In fact, it's an insult to that history which we have fought so hard for. The palace letters open the door to scrutiny of the role of the monarch in matters of governance. By rejecting these claims of royal secrecy, now we can see that the interventionist role of Queen Elizabeth and of Charles, now King Charles of Australia, we can now see how they enabled and encouraged the Governor-General in his removal of the elected Whitlam government. Dear listener, the implications of this for Australia's future are just obvious, blatantly obvious. The book is The Palace Letters. The Queen, the Governor-General and the plot to dismiss Gough Whitlam. You can get it at any reputable bookstore. Have a look for it online by Professor Jenny Hawkins for the groundbreaking account. With the material from the Palace Letters from Kerr's archives where Hawking traces the collusion and deception behind the dismissal and she charts the secret role of High Court judges, the leader of the opposition, Malcolm Fraser, and the Queen's private secretary in fostering and supporting Kerr's actions. With all the razzmatazz Kangaroos and wallabies Won't sing God save the Queen Koala bears and dingoes Won't bend the knee or lean Australia Republic No union flag is flown And off the stamps and notes and coins The monarchy is gone The honours list you're sure to miss No title going your way Oh, believe me, Mr. Keating, they'll try to ruin your day. Believe me, Mr. Keating, you have our sympathy when you say you want to rid your land of England's monarchy. For there hasn't been a country, a people or a land, given freedom easily by Britannia's hungry hand. For just like Mr. Dillinger, the mafia or mob, you can't leave a privileged company and get another job. Those loyalist, royalist redcoats, those privileges and power, may turn your little plan for our republic mighty sour. Sir Bob the Knob and Lady Blob don't like your plan to rule. And Lady Gong from Wollongong, she didn't like your school. Mr. Grubber, Mr. Jingo, the Sirs and MBs would like to see Australians and Irish on their knees. Oh, believe me, Mr. Keating, you have our sympathy when you say you want to rid your land of England's monarchy. For there hasn't been a country. 
Given freedom easily by Britannia's hungry hand The convicts posted salmon, they stole the grain and oats And sentenced for Australia with rags and sex for coats Descendants of those felons will let their voice be heard And rid the fair Australia of Lizzie's lousy head We see the crown of England and wash it from your soul That famous institution that seen many heads did roll And all the loyalists claptrap maintain the English realm Don't worry Mr Keating while you are at the helm Oh believe me Mr Keating, do you have our sympathy When you say you want to rid your land of England's monarchy But there hasn't been a country, a people or a land Given freedom easily by Britannia's hungry hand Those heirs and dukes and princes, their military machines Who brought such pain and misery to this little isle of green For your estates and treasures, you produce no bill of sale You plundered lands around the world or took it from the gale Dispossessed, evicted, from homes and cabins banned Your forebears joined the millions that were exiled from their land They shipped away the problem, at least that's what they thought And generations later now, Australia can't be bought Believe me, Mr. Keating, you have our sympathy When you say you want to rid your land of England's monarchy For there hasn't been a country, a people or a land Given freedom easily by Britannia's hungry hand Believe me, Mr Keating, you have our sympathy When you say you want to rid your land of England's monarchy Oh, believe me, Mr Keating, you have our sympathy And it's time to hear from the BL from the bush At what I am, I say what I think that the company stinks. Yes, I'm a union man. Morning, uh, comrade. Morning, listener. Be off on the bush calling in. Hoping you're all uh, bright eyed and bushy tailed. Well, you know, it's not um, it's not every day you can sort of start your start your talk off with a bit of good news. Well, it is to me anyway. That news being the death of Peter Reith. If you remember the uh, blue down at on the Stevedore and Blues down on the on the wharves all around Australia, it was Reith that was the one that pushed this through their IR reforms. He was instrumental. Could the go ahead for the uh, for the sacking of the the workers through uh, Patrick's, then gave him the go ahead to bring in scabs, scabs in buses. Scab contractors with the bully boys, the, the standovers with their guard dogs, balaclavas. This is all done in stealth by at night time. Dragging people out of cranes and, and what have you. You know, he was instrumental in all that. He was called, or little, little Johnny Howard was called him his hard man. He was going to fix this and fix that and whatever he did. Anyway, he got his right whack the other day and good riddance to bad shit, I say. Anyway, listener, 
That's about enough of that for the minute. Just like to talk to you about um, politicians. Uh, now, new Royal Commission. You know what I'm thinking about Royal Commissions. Well, this one, uh, this one is now on robo debt. What I'd like to talk to you about is is the, how the politicians can just get away with doing this stuff. It's where's their accountability go? You know, they they just just free and easy to do what they like. This robo debt was one of the most horrific things that was ever put in place. It was solely and wholly targeted. The people solely and wholly targeted were those uh, in receipt of social security entitlements or any sort of government scheme, which is, uh, at the end of the day, taxpayers' money anyway. It was pretty pretty horrible. I've just started to put a few things together and just sort of like to discuss it with you. So good. Just sort of wondering why politicians get away with the wasting taxpayers' money. You know, it's just a couple of examples of, of blatant waste and misuse of public funds, as I've said, robo-debt, or data matching technique, as it was called, or proper name for it. As we all found out later on, it should have been called flawed data matching technique. Anyway, the system was supposedly set up to recover illegal claims, overpayments, fraud, etc. Uh, just before the coalition implemented this dud of a scheme, was told that it could be illegal. But in true coalition form and ideology, they went ahead with it anyway, so as to catch, in their words, or in their way of thinking, these professional fraudsters on social security entitlements. You know, after many complaints about the burden of proof being put on the recipient, not the government, they were all ignored. That was the whole thing about that is that, you know, like in this great democratic country we have and, and, and the law and everyone gets a jam together, you know, we're all, we're all innocent until proven guilty. Well, not so much with this mob. They sent you out a letter. In the letter they said that you, you somehow or whether through not putting the right figures on your uh, chits you put in to, to get a quid, you were the defraud in the government, so pay up. So you were automatically guilty and it was back to you to prove that they were wrong in saying that you were guilty, not the other way around. They got away with that for so long. Years went on and advice was given by various non-government organisations and ignored by the arrogance and hubris of the pillars of society. Well, that was the mob that, uh, that oversaw this over the years, or the ministers that oversaw it anyway. Yeah, and some uh, high-profile ministers' names may come out further down the track in this uh, Royal Commission, and let's hope so. And, uh, as I said, what great pillars of society they are, and just on a few of them, or a couple of them in there, I'm just thinking that a couple of those may have been front and centre of some of the um, shenanigans going up there at the, at the House of Debauchery, some of the scandals that were going on up there. So millions of dollars uh, of taxpayers' money were being spent on court cases and appeals to keep the system alive. Some of the cases were reviewed and the money, some of the money was paid back to Social Security recipients. But that didn't stop the coalition pursuing more appeals to the highest courts in the land. Just kept on wasting more money and more money, chasing money. And in the background, they're getting told that this scheme is illegal. What you're doing is wrong. But no. Just keep spending, keep spending. Not only with the recipients being savaged by emails, letters, texts and lower than lower debt collectors, but also the Murdoch press jumped on board and helped fuel the coalition's frenzied attack by punning the recipients 
as dull bludgers, bong smoke and Byron Bay alcohol partying layabouts. Now, mind you, listen up, you know, you, you got to give it to them, got to give it to the Murdoch press. I'm putting the boot in every chance I could get and just saying that everyone on the dole was just, just having a bit of a party. But all on 40 bucks a day, mind you, you know. Of course you can. You can do all that stuff on $40 a day. Just cruise around the country, getting on the piss and carrying on. Yeah, sure. Anyway, finally, it was the class action board by Peter Gordon. And then the government had to pay back $2 billion of taxpayers' money. Mind you, the overall cost of this failed scheme is very hard to find. Also, listen, there was no compensation paid for pain and suffering. And how that ever was allowed to, to get away with that, I just don't know. The Albanese government has set up a Royal Commission about the failed scheme, again at great cost to the taxpayer. The point here is that when you have such a deliberate denial from politicians and ongoing cost to the taxpayer to prove that they are right, even to right, then get proven wrong, they should be held accountable like anyone else would be, they'd be sacked. You can only hope that some of the outcomes of the Royal Commission is to find these perpetrators guilty of destroying the lives of the most vulnerable people in society and to be dealt with severely. Let's not forget, listener, there were families absolutely destroyed. Suicides, marriage breakups, homelessness and increased mental health illness. Bad credit ratings and the loss and, and the list goes on. All by this failed and illegal scheme propped up by Tom and Tim by the by this unaccountable politicians. So I would encourage you to follow the Royal Commission to RoboDebt and just see what and how they legally enforce their cruelty and to what extent they will be held accountable. Well, we can only wait and see, listener. But at least at least there's a commission, Royal Commission in, into it and we'll just sort of find out you know, what barbarians these people were to, to treat our most vulnerable like this. So it did be worth listening, just have a bit of an eye on it, keep an eye on it and get yourself engaged in it because um, it's your money paying for this and it was your money that, that, that helped destroy the lives of people doing it hard. Anyway, listener, uh, that'll probably do me for a, for a bit. So I'll go out the same old way. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast, the only show left. And it's time to hear from the Bagman and the next update in his memoirs.
Good morning, Susan. Good morning to all your listeners. Now, I'm going to take a punt here, Susan. I reckon it's about 36 days until Christmas. So if I'm not around, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Now, I know that the economy is not in the best shape at the moment, but I implore you not to take one bit of notice of the doom and gloom that naysayers, I understand, inundate you within the media. With only so many days to empty your wallet, your credit card, etc., it's your duty and yours alone to help the business sector that continues to rake in excessive profits. The banking sector comes readily to mind, closely followed by the major supermarkets. The Australian Business Council is going to be massaging your wallet of every consumer for the annual plea to, to the most vulnerable to hit the kick to make sure that the retailers will make record profits again this year. Now it's called the annual hand in your pocket. If we fail to reach the target the business community expects, it's going to be the end of the world as we know it. So if you're off to buy the $2 T-shirt, the $18 dress made with slave labour in some country we really don't care about, so it's your duty to max out your credit card. Even if necessary, sell the grandkids for medical science. We'll see what you can get at cash converters where they turn stolen goods into heroin. Live in debt for the next 12 months. Follow the business council advice after all. It's not their money. But remember, remember, it's not yours either. Now, Susan, I'm going to be short and sweet this week on my part of the Trade Union History segment on your very popular radio program, which people know, listen to on Radio 3CR, left after breakfast at 9 o'clock every Friday morning. People should know that it's also available on podcasts. So... In 1983, I was off to the Soviet Union again. Listeners will remember the previous podcasts about how to enter Sofia, Bulgaria, without alerting the Australian authorities during the so-called Cold War. Now, I was still working for the Militant Food Preservers Union and was invited to attend the World Congress of the World Federation of Trade Unions to exchange views of workers worldwide about Australian workers' wages and conditions. Now, addressing the conference and an exchange of views with other delegates from other most Eastern and European countries, including some from the West, was one thing. But I was not to know the roller coaster ride I was about to embark on some of my own doing. Careful here, no names, no pactual. But let's unpack one incident at a time. One of the delegates later to become a senator in his own country may have faced difficulty coping with an unfamiliar system of international travel 
with such a large Congress and may be suffering a certain amount of homesickness, sought some relief from the stress he was suffering. After returning from a late night meeting, coming out of the lift on the fourth floor of the Moscow Hotel. Now, I remember the fourth floor of the Moscow Hotel because every time I'd been in, I'd been in Moscow, uh, I'd been placed in the same room. Anyway, I came out of the lift on the fourth floor, confronted by some soon-to-become senator running up and down the corridor screaming, I've been robbed, I've been robbed, and accusing a lady he had sought relief from of the robbery. My concern at the time was for the female, obviously trying to earn a few rubles to survive. I offered the soon senator uh, a, a wallet full of compensation to make sure the police would not be involved, and I don't mean the hotel security, I mean the KGB. Now, I offered the soon-to-be senator a wad of money to allow the woman to escape, but by this stage the alcohol had him blowing over the limit, and he took the wad of cash and tore it into pieces in front of me. Oh, God. The woman was able to make an exit down the back stairs and out of the grasp of the KGB, but our soon-to-be-elected senator was in a state of disrepair and started to talk in his grandfather's voice. Now, apparently, alcohol did that to him, and as I directed him back to his room on the out of the way of the KGB. Just as I manoeuvred him to the door of the room, he thanked me for saving him from the grasp of the KBG by landing a left hook to my glass jaw, knocking me out cold. Oh, thanks, comrade. When I came to, I was surrounded by KGB officers demanding to know what the commotion was about. After an hour of sitting on the floor, back against the wall, including some intense interrogation, I seemed to convince them that I really wasn't to blame. <sighs> the soon-to-be senator was back in his room, unaware of the commotion he had caused, albeit a sore head the next day. The woman providing the stress relief to one delegate was free to ply her trade another day. An all-round good day, but for the sore jaw. You've got to remember, when you attend important congresses in the Soviet Union, every delegate is afforded a, an interpreter and another person to make sure that their needs are met. That's only natural, including VIP entrance to and from security measures such as airports, etc. Not going through the normal security formalities straight through, no passing go, no collecting 200. My turn to face the music. Leaving Moscow Airport, I was required to empty my pockets of any Russian rubles, nothing else. I cheerfully emptied my small change 
and the few rubles I still had, and you could have knocked me over the, with a wet tram ticket when out of my overcoat, which I had only worn once in about five years, landing on the table of the guard complete with a Kalishta cough, a small parcel containing, you won't believe this, a very small amount of vegetable matter. Ooh. He looked at me, I looked at the small parcel on the t- and the money on the table. I thought, I'm in more shit than a rude duck here. What's this, he demanded. Chai, I responded, for my kidneys. He looked at me once again at the small amount spread out on the table. He winked at me. Mine, he asked. Yes, absolutely, I replied. He could have all the rubles he wanted. Now, I was unaware that the death penalty applied in the Soviet Union at that time for even small amounts of vegetable matter. Now, all I can say about that is it always pays to be in the Union. Soon, one more week before our break this year, and I hope to, if I'm still around at this time next week, we'll have another history segment uh, on your very popular radio program. But I want to go out in the same old way, dare to struggle Dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast. Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode of Left After Breakfast. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you same time, same place next week. And until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast.